So you get one chance to give a first message at a church. And so what do you say at a first message? What scripture do you use? And as I was thinking about this and praying about this, John 13 came to mind. If you have your Bibles, if you brought Bibles, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy to give you one. There are Bibles available. Um, raise your hand and I can get an usher to give you a Bible. Uh, there's one in the back here. If, uh, if we can get an usher to the back to provide a Bible. Thanks, Heather. John 13. It's, uh, it's pretty lengthy ways through your Bible it's towards the end. Words will be on the screen, by the way, if you don't have a Bible. Starting at verse 3, it says this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not now realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to the words of your scripture, to how your spirit wants to work in our hearts this morning, Father. I pray that you would create humility in us. Tear down whatever walls of pride we may have, Father, so that we might hear your voice this morning. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen. So imagine for a moment that you are one of Jesus' disciples. A week prior to this dinner, Jesus gathered you and the 11 others and told you that you were going to Jerusalem. Now, this isn't an abnormal thing. It's the feast of the Passover. And so you and about a million other Jews, literally a million other Jews, are also heading to Jerusalem during this week. You're going on pilgrimage, as you have done every year since the time you were a boy. You're going to celebrate how God had liberated his people from the bondage of the Egyptians. You're going to celebrate this Passover festival. Now, just before you leave on this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus confirmed that he was God's Messiah. Jesus is God's Messiah. It's a fancy word that means his anointed one, his chosen one, the one that he had uh, determined would liberate his people. Jesus is the Messiah. That's right, Jesus tells you, I am the Messiah. And now we're going to go to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, 
I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to, they're going to beat me. They're going to put me through an unfair trial, and they're going to hand me over to the Romans who are going to beat me some more, spit on me some more, mock on me some more, scourge me, do everything they possibly can to kill me, and in the end, they will succeed by nailing me to the cross. That is why we are going to Jerusalem. And you, you, you and the other disciples are sitting there just dumbstruck, like, well, Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? What you just described, that's not the Messiah. That's not what we understand of the Messiah. That's, how, that's not who the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is a king, Jesus. If you're the Messiah, then you should be the king sitting on the throne. You're the one who's going to come and liberate us from the oppression of the Romans. You're going to ride in with a sword in your hand, sitting on a white horse, Jesus. That's what you're going to do. And Jesus says, guys, guys, you, you, you don't get it. You are the ones who are wrong. You are the ones who don't understand. And so what do you and your friends talk about on the way to Jerusalem? I mean, you would think you would sit there and actually you would walk there contemplating, man, what, what does Jesus mean? What, what, what does he mean by this whole going to Jerusalem and dying thing? I don't get that. Maybe you would, maybe you would walk along and you would, you would mourn the fact that your best friend and the teacher, your mentor, is about to die. How would you talk with your friends as you're on this journey to Jerusalem? Well, you and your buddy approach Jesus, and you say, Hey, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Hey, guys, Jesus is the Messiah. And do you know what that means? It means that he's going to go and he's going to sit on his throne with his crown on his head, with a sword in his hand, and he's going to defeat the oppressive Romans. And guys, guess what? When we get to Jerusalem, I think that I'm the greatest of all of us, so I'm going to ask that I sit on his right. And you're like, what? You're not the greatest of the disciples. I'm the greatest of the disciples. I'm going to sit at his right. You can sit on his left. They just didn't get it, right? Still, Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going there to die. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going there to die. I'm going there to suffer a horrible, horrible death. And they're like, all right, Jesus is going to be the king. They just didn't get it. And so, Jesus can only imagine, I think, that uh, his disciples are completely lost at this point, right? They just, they just don't understand. And so what they do, they go to Jerusalem and they arrive at a house. And it's in this house that they're going to celebrate the Passover together. Now, usually in Jerusalem or any great city in their day, when you entered into a house there would be a servant there, ready, prepared to wash your feet. Now, the reason foot washing was so common was because most people in Jesus' day wore simple sandals. They were leather slabs with ropes and, or, or, or bindings wrapped around your feet and around your ankles. They were completely exposed to the dirt and the grime on the floor. Only the wealthy had enclosed shoes in Jesus' day. And so most people had horrible ugly, disgusting feet because they abused them and wore them out by walking on these cheap sandals all day. And there was no protection for one's feet against the conditions of the road. And during the Passover week specifically, the roads were in horrible conditions. Horrible conditions, the worst conditions of all the year. Imagine, it's the rainy season, first of all. And so about the inch of dust that is usually sitting on the roads is turned to mud. 
You're sloshing through mud all day long as you walk up and down the city streets of Jerusalem. There are also an extra one million Jews in Jerusalem, bringing the population of the city up to about 2.5 million people. Not to mention all of the Romans and all the other Gentiles already living in the city, about 2.5 million people. 2.5 million people crammed into the city with their cattle and their lambs that they had brought to sacrifice with the Passover meal. Now, there's no pasture inside the city, and so where do the animals do their business? They do it on the city streets. And so here you are, walking in about an inch full of mud, and you're walking through all of the business of all of the animals. Not to mention that, there were 250,000 lambs slaughtered for the Passover. It was said that one lamb could be provided for 10 people. And so if there are 2.5 million Jews in the city, that meant 250,000 lambs being sacrificed for this feast. It was said that there was a river of blood running from the Temple Mount through the city streets of Jerusalem all the way into the Valley of Hinnom because the amount of animals that were being sacrificed in such a short amount of time. And so here you are, a disciple of Jesus, sloshing through the mud and the feces and the blood with exposed feet, and then you arrive at this house thinking maybe, just maybe, there will be a servant there to wash my feet because I really, really need it. It was the week of the Passover that servants dreaded the most. Please do not let the wa foot washing card fall on me this week. I'll do anything to get out of foot washing this week. Please just do not let me wash the feet of the people that come into this house this week. It was the worst week out of all of the year. But when the disciples and Jesus arrive at the house, there is nobody there to wash the feet. And so in the beginning, nobody does. They sit down to dinner with their disgusting feet, and they begin to eat. Now, you know, Jesus is probably remembering back to the conversation his disciples were having on the way to Jerusalem. Right? His disciples are wondering which of them is the greatest. They're wondering which of them is going to be given the most power and the authority when Jesus takes over his kingdom. They're wondering what life will be like when they have slaves to wash their feet when they enter into their own household. Man, when I have privilege, when I get power, when I get authority, life is going to be great. And I want you to notice the contrast here. Right? The disciples are thinking about all the privilege and the power that they can get. And Jesus begins the foot washing description by stating, I'm sorry, John begins the foot washing description by stating that Jesus does this with his power and privilege. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Right? Notice that. God had put all of the power in heaven and earth under Jesus' command. He had all the authority. He had all the power. So what does Jesus do with it? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Restoration Church, this is the most important part of this entire section. Highlight this, star it, underline it, do whatever you have to do to notice that this section is why this passage exists. You know, a, a lot of people look at this and they think, wow. Can you believe the great love of God? Can you believe what he has done here? 
Can you believe that the creator of all that exists, the Lord of the universe, would stoop so low and wash the disgusting feet of his followers? Can you believe it? Wow, God is incredible. This is amazing. God is awesome. You know, most of us have this image of God who is so great and mighty and full of power and privilege that for him to leave his heavenly throne is just this, this, this huge gap that he has to, to cross, and it's an incredible, exceptional act of love on his behalf. It's like we think of God in, in heaven looking down on the world and wondering, man, should I do something about my people's predicament? Should I cross that divide and come down? Man, should I do it? I know it's going to cost me a lot. Should I do it? And if that is how we view this passage in God, then we are completely missing the point. The, the point is not to say that Jesus washing his disciples' feet is an exception to his character, that, wow, the God of the universe stoops so low, what an incredible act of love. That's not the point. The point is rather to say that Jesus washing his disciples' feet is exactly what love does. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is exactly what love does. Dying on the cross is exactly what love does. There is no exception to his character here. It's not like God had to think about coming down to rescue his people. There is no exception to his character here. This is God's love. This is God. Jesus is proving through the foot washing exactly who God was and who God still is today. God is love, and this is what love does. Love stoops down. Love bends low. Love gives. Love sacrifices. Love does. And so do you want to know who God is? Anybody here this morning questioning who God is, wondering what God is like? You have to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to get the most perfect and accurate image of who God is. You have to look no further than Jesus bending low to, to scrape off the feces and the blood and the dirt and the yuck and the grotesqueness of it all. Love does this. There is no exception to his character here. Jesus did not think about it. He did not blink an eye. He bent down and he served his disciples. God is love and this is what love does. So we, like Jesus' disciples, we have a problem. We, we have this, this self-reigning heart, this mentality that says it's all about me. I'm selfish. I want the power, I want the privilege, I want the authority, and I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want in this world to make my life better. We, we all have that problem. It's called the sin nature. But John here is so deliberate in painting a picture of Jesus that is nothing like that. That, in fact, is the complete opposite of that. Love bends its knee, and it doesn't matter how filthy the ground is that its knee touches. Love gives, love sacrifices, love does. This is God. This is who God is. Now, John does something very interesting in verse 4 and 12 of this passage that most of our English translations miss. The NIV, which is the passage I am using states that Jesus took off his clothing in verse 4, and in verse 12, he put on his clothes. It makes sense, right? That's how we would read it. I take off my clothes, I put them back on. It makes sense. But that's not what the Greek says. 
The, the Greek language is very deliberate here. Jesus did not take off and put on, but rather he tethenai and lambanin. He laid down his clothes and he took them up again. The difference to us may seem very small, but the truth is it's incredible. Jesus laid down his clothes and he took them up again. It's a direct reference to John 10, 17, when Jesus is describing his death and resurrection. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. God is love and this is what love does. It's not like someone put a gun to Jesus' head saying, Jesus, lay down your life or you're going to die anyway. It's not like someone had to coerce him or manipulate him to do what he did. No, he laid it out. He laid his life down by his own will and volition. Love does. And the foot washing is meant to be seen as a direct parallel to Jesus' ultimate love and service, which is, of course, the cross. And so Restoration Church, let's take a moment to reflect on this. We all have a problem. It's called the sin nature. Now, I've described our problem as the self-reigning heart. It's myself sitting on the throne. It's my selfish ambition. It's my vain conceit. It's me, me, me. It's not caring about you guys. It's not serving my neighbor. It's all about me. This world revolves around me. That is the sinful problem. We all have this tendency to put ourselves first. We are selfish people who, if left to our own devices, will consume and take until there is nothing left for anybody else. We long for power and privilege and control and authority. And as much, of a, as much as most of us think we will be better off for it, we don't actually realize that this is the source of all the pain and loneliness in the world. That the self-reigning heart, the self-consuming heart, the selfish ambition is actually the source behind the pain in our marriages. It's the source behind the pain in our loneliness. It's the source behind the pain. Whatever pain you may have, it's the source behind it. Whatever hurt you may have, it's the source behind it. Whatever loneliness or guilt or shame or hatred or envy or lust you may have, the self-reigning heart is the source behind all of it. It's where guilt and shame and hatred and all these things, it's their breeding ground. It's where they develop. It's where they begin. And so this, the, the Bible describes this as our sinful nature. It describes it as death. And because God is love, he acted in accordance with that love to rescue us from our horrible condition. How many of you, can I see a show of hands, have felt the experience of the self-reigning heart before? Have experienced pain and hatred and guilt, agony, bitterness? We all know it's real, right? We've all felt it. We've all experienced it. And so God in his great love said, of course, love does. Of course I stoop low. Of course I bend down. Of course I come to rescue the people whom I love. He took upon himself our death and he made a way for life. He has forgiven us of our rebellion and he calls us to be clean of our sinful ways. But here's the trick, guys. We must hate the self-reigning heart within us. We must nail it to the cross of Jesus Christ. We must surrender our reign. And if you place your trust in what he accomplished in forgiving your sins, then he will begin a cleansing work in you. He will begin a cleansing work in you. If you place your trust in what he has accomplished 
by forgiving your sins. Now, the thing is, you may not walk away from this place having put your trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You may not walk away from this place a brand new person. You may not walk away from this place all of a sudden free of your anger issues. You may not walk away from this place all of a sudden free from your porn addiction. You may not walk away from this place a less impatient person. But if you trust that Jesus took upon himself your sin and died, then it is dead. It's dead. It's been nailed to the cross. It no longer has power over you. It no longer has mastery over you. It is dead. It still may cry out from the grave, but it no longer has mastery over you. It is dead. It, it's it's kind of like the, the whole surrender bait. It's kind of like a, a soldier in battle in some ways. You're a soldier on the enemy camp, and you can, you can see the, the, the camp of, of God. And, and you, and you want to get over there, but you're so deep in the enemy camp that once you put up your white flag and say, I surrender, God, like you're, you're still surrounded by all of your, your troops. You still have to walk through the lines of now the now enemy camp to get to God's side. You still have to travel to that place. And as you travel, those troops are going to say, like, man, what are you doing? Did you just surrender? I can't believe you just did that. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to rebuke you. They're going to do all they can to keep you on this side of the line. And you have to fight, and you have to make your way through those enemy lines to get to the other side. Now, there are some people who surrender, and they're so close to the other side, they're in the front lines of the now enemy camp, that they can just cross right over, and all of a sudden their lives have changed. But there are some people who are so far back in the enemy camp that the life change, it, it, it's a process. It takes a while. You are clean, but we must allow Jesus to continue to clean us. It's kind of what it's like, you know. You experience the, the, the effects of the sinful world. You experience the effects of living in the enemy camp still. And so how do we get to the other side? How do we improve? How do we get to that point where we are clean? Well, Jesus sums it up by talking to Peter in verses 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not now realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash me. Jesus answered, unless I was, unless I was you, you have no part, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Here's the thing, Jesus has already cleansed us, right? Our sinful nature is already dead. We've already been cleaned. Our self-reigning heart has already been put to death. We don't need a full bath. We don't need to take a bath again. We've already had a bath. We just need the daily scrubbings of the spirit over the various areas of our life that are continually unclean. We walk around in the filth and the yuck of the world, and so our feet need daily cleansing. Maybe you need him to cleanse your pride because you find yourself continually getting puffed up. That's a daily scrubbing, right? He's already cleansed you. The sinful nature is already put to death, but you just need that daily scrubbing of your pride. Maybe you need a daily scrubbing of your eyes because you have 
a pornographic addiction. Right? Your heart has already been surrendered. You've already been clean. You just need the daily scrubbing of your eyes. Maybe you need a daily scrubbing of your mouth because you have a gossip problem. Right? Your heart has already been cleansed. Now you just need a daily scrubbing of your tongue. The sinful nature is already dead. It's been nailed to the cross. Now we just need Jesus' life to continue to cleanse us. We are clean, but we must die daily with Jesus and allow those grubbings to continue on as he makes us new. And here is why. Do you understand what I have done for you, Jesus says? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, Jesus has given us not only a model, but a tracing of what our lives as disciples are supposed to look like. It's a tracing. The first task on my son's homework every Monday and Wednesday when he comes home is to trace his name. His teacher writes Ethan in dotted lines at the top of his paper, and he needs to follow how she has written his name. He needs to trace his name. And so the other day, I was looking at a project that Ethan had done, and I was commenting to the person next to me. I said, man, Ethan's handwriting is getting really good. But then I stopped, and I looked at it further, and I realized that doesn't actually look like Ethan's handwriting. You know, when Ethan writes, like, just a, a note, for instance, if you were to write, I love you, the I would be super big, and the you would be all over the place, and, you know, the love would be all over the place, too. It's, it's, it's a mess. But ask Ethan to write his name, and all the, all the letters are the same shape, and they're the same size, and they're neatly done. He has learned to write his name beautifully because he has traced his name in a beautiful manner for so many days now. And this is what Jesus is asking of his disciples. Trace my example in every area of your life. Trace my example in every area of your life. And you will find that those areas that are all over the place in your life, that are all over the board, those areas where your eyes are really big and your loves are all over the place and your you's, are all messed up? Learn to trace Jesus' example over those areas, and you will find that they become neat. You will find that they become organized. You will find that they become loving. It makes sense that Jesus concludes with uh, verse 35. It's kind of a description, a summary description in some ways. That the world will know who his true followers are by the way that we love one another. The world will know who his true followers are by the, our service and by the tracing of our lives upon this world. 
It's not by your church attendance that the world will know who Jesus' disciples are. It's not by how often you read the Bible or how often you pray. It's not by any of these external religious behaviors that the world will know who the disciples of Jesus are. It is by our love. It is by our ability to trace Jesus in this world. I'm burdened by surveys that tell me that when the world looks at Christianity, that the, wor- that the words that the world chooses to describe us are anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, too political, sheltered, and proselytizing. We need to learn to trace Jesus better in this world. Our lives need to become the pen that we are constantly tracing Jesus' actions in this world by. And that is my prayer for Restoration Church. That is my prayer for this place, for this community of people, that we would become a people who love one another. At the end of the day, we would not be people who have great church attendance. We would not be a people who, 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 can, who can point to a chart that said, I read my Bible this week. That we would be a people who love one another. That, that, that we look to the people in the pew next to us and say, yeah, I see you have a need. I see you have a hurt. What can I do to help? I pray that we would be a people who trace Jesus upon this world. And I will leave you with this final promise. Verse 17 says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A lot of people think that dying on a cross is a huge sacrifice. And rightfully so, right? It is. It costs a lot to love my neighbor. It costs a lot to do what God has called me to do as a follower of himself. But the promise has never been loneliness. The promise has never been drudgery. The promise has never been boredom. You will be blessed if you learn to love as Jesus has loved. You will find joy. You will find a community. You will find a fellowship of people who care for you. You will come to life. You will do what you were meant to do as followers of Jesus. Restoration Church, can we learn to do that together? Can we learn to be a people who set aside our self-reigning heart, who acknowledge that it's already been put to death, and so I just want the daily scrubbings. I will call out for the daily scrubbings. God, cleanse my eyes, cleanse my hands, cleanse my feet, cleanse my tongue. Whatever area of your life you need cleansing today, cry out, and God will begin a cleansing work in it. You will move closer to his side of the camp if you continue asking for the scrubbings, the regular daily scrubbings of God. And as we do that, we will show the world who God is, right? Because love does. We will show the world who God is as a sacrificial, loving God. He didn't do it in some exception of his character. Love does, and we are therefore called to do as well. Let us learn to serve our neighbor. Let us learn to bend low and lift others up. Restoration Church, if you would please stand for your benediction. I would love for us to experience the great love and power of God in this place. I would love for this to be a great beacon of light that goes out into the dark world. I would pray. I would love for this to be a community of prayer that sees brokenness and seeks to mend, that sees hurt and seeks to bring healing, that seeks to love our neighbor as ourselves because that is what we are called to do as a church body. Restoration Church, go in peace, serving your neighbor in a way 
that is like Jesus. Trace Jesus upon your household. Trace Jesus upon this world. Trace Jesus upon your workforce. Prove to the world who God is. And not only will you come to life, but you will see the world around you come to life. Amen.